Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 minutes, no, oh, who am I kidding, at least a half hour with Ed Greenwood. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Alistair Stewart. And you've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is your opportunity as a writer and a creative to no longer be in critical surgery, but move across to that weird thing where they put people who have buckets on their heads. Our job is very, very simple. Together, we will assist in workshopping a story that an author has brought in with a bucket on its head. Sometimes that bucket might be an unusual character name. Sometimes it might be an actual bucket. Sometimes it might be a story that is 1.75 acts long. And if you don't believe me that that's a thing, I saw a film, millions of dollars spent on it this week, which is 1.75 acts long. It's a thing that happens. That is what we do here. On top of all that, this show is, of course, an opportunity to sit down with some amazing creators and explore their craft in our never-ending eternal quest to improve our own. Absolutely. That's a wonderful summary of the awesomeness of the roundtable, Alistair. Thank you so much. My pleasure, sir. You do good work. (laughs) You're a gentleman. Alistair Stewart, the man of (coughs) words, blogger, game designer, and and erudite gentleman about town. Thank you so much for being my co-host for this episode, man. I am so looking forward to this. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. All right, Al, sit back, relax. Refill that cup of tea uh, uh, and and allow me to regale you. Dear friends, I will tell you right up front, this is going to take just a touch longer than it usually does. Uh, but, but, but let me introduce you, Al, and everyone to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. Now... <laughs> Al, friends, you all know I prepare for these interviews very much like a big game hunter tracking his prey. I'm I'm combing the wilds of cyberspace for those faint clues, those broken branches and faded tracks that will lead me to the elusive prize of a well-wrought introduction. (laughs) This particular hunt was a whole different beast altogether. Uh, To say there was an embarrassment of riches to be found on our guest host would be a gross understatement. And as we all know, understatement is not my forte. Uh, The task then became not to track the full arc of ascension to his current literary glory, uh, but to unearth the catalyzing events that set him on that path. Now, those events are largely centralized around a place called Don Mills, Ontario, where he was born. His family was steeped in literary awesomeness. His mother, Barbara, was an author of several popular children's books. His uncle, W.G. Hardy, had a legacy of bestsellers under his belt, and his father worked for the military and as a university professor. So he was raised amid a reverence for the power and potency of storytelling. The house was filled to bursting with books a condition I am given to understand that he emulates in his current home. The shelves were lined with literary classics, comic books, historical narratives, and pulp fiction magazines. But the cabinets... 
The cabinets were filled with games. Cribbage, chess, euchre, checkers, and even some top-secret NATO simulation games and battle recreations with miniature figurines. These were all common pastimes in the family halls, usually accompanied by much music and laughter. And our young guest host feasted hungrily on all of it, devouring fiction and non-fiction alike. But he was particularly taken by Fritz Leiber's tales of Fofred and Greymouser, eagerly devoured from the pages of Fantastic Magazine. He realized upon his third or fourth reading of the canon that while each tale was separate and self-contained, they were told in a persistent setting much like Howard's Conan's stories. Now, this caught in his imagination, and he would frequently ask his father if there were more installments of these and other stories. Often, unfortunately, there weren't. And after countless inquiries, his father eventually resorted to responding, no, and if you want more of those stories, you're going to have to write them yourself. Dun, dun, dun. Cue dramatic music cut to a writerly montage of our guest host at six years old, writing furiously, either longhand or pounding away on a tank of a typewriter, the Underwood 8, crafting swashbuckling pastiches of his favorite stories. And it was from those stories, this one in particular written in 1967, seven years before D&D was published, that this fateful line was written. Now, in all the lands twixt bustling water deep and the sparkling waves of the sea of fallen stars, no men were more loved and feared than the stoic swordsman Durnan, the blustering old rogue Mert, and the all-wise ancient wizard Elminster. He was eight years old, guys. Pause for everyone to catch their breath at the enormity of what just happened. Now, outside of Don Mills, there's a creek that wends its way through fern-dappled ravines called Wilkett Creek. It was on the sandy banks of this gentle stream that our guest host would gather with his friends. They would carry their boxed editions of games like Kingmaker and Diplomacy, purchased at stores named Mr. Gameway's Ark and later the Battered Dwarf, to this pastoral sanctuary and play through long weekend afternoons discussing Clark Ashton Smith, Lord Dunsany, Jack Vance, and Tolkien, indulging in what-ifs and speculating on Lovecraft and Zelazny. Now, in 1971, Gary Gygax released the Chainmail Miniatures Gaming Rules, and our guest host and his chums snapped it up and integrated it into their gameplay. In 74, D&D came out, and in 77, the original Monster Manual was released. Now, the magic detailed in the player's handbook and the codification of the mythological beasts in the Monster Manual were inspiring for our guest host, so much so that he started adapting his stories into the AD&D game system. Now, at this point in the narrative, I'd like to pause for a moment and point out a subtle distinction. The distinction between passion and love. Now, passion is a fiery and consuming desire, an exciting hunger that drives us to the table of whatever delights us. It is, by definition, a selfish impulse. 
Love, on the other hand, is the discovery that your passion can be applied in service to something or someone. It connects you to something greater than yourself, something to which you will surrender utterly and gladly. For our guest host, that discovery was facilitated through a young woman named September. She arrived to attend university, and she was a radiant beauty who loved fantasy tales and laughed delightedly at the lads fencing in front of the game store. In our guest host and his mates, September had found a group with whom to play her latest passion, Dungeons and Dragons. They told her they had the perfect place to play, and together they boarded the bus to their refuge, the boys bearing chips, soda, and homemade dip, and September sporting boots and a cloak and a mysterious duffel bag. When they disembarked and entered the woods, September asked to be alone for a moment. Now, the young gents articulating the gallantry that every deeply smitten nerd has expressed at some point in their lives directed her to a dense copse of bushes. When she emerged, she was wearing half armor, cloak thrown back, and a real longsword gripped in her leather gauntleted hands. Come, she said, play with me. And oh, dear friends, they did. September's games were unlike anything our guest host had experienced. She role-played all the NPCs like a master thespian. She would weep at the sad parts and leap about the glade during melee as the group's characters indulged in battle banter and repartee. But more than that, she fostered our guest host's imagination, prodding him with questions and urging him to become the idea man for the group. She was a bolt of lightning from the heavens, invigorating and transforming our guest host's delight into a calling, his passion into a love. And like a lightning bolt, she was tragically gone just as quickly, claimed by cancer just over a year later. I can only imagine the soul-deep sorrow at such a cruelty, but our guest host honored her memory, honors it to this day, with every game he DMs and every tale he writes. He would go on to attend Ryerson University, securing a degree in journalism, editing and becoming featured writer for several of the university's journals and publications, and even performing voiceover work and editing for the CBC. His work in journalism, in the noisy, chaotic age before computers and the internet, imbued him with the ability to write anywhere, at any time, on anything. And he would also indulge in a bit of piano, a stint with rock guitar, and a long-standing engagement with choral singing, both religious and secular. And he continued to game and tell stories with his friends, transcribing game sessions longhand in test notebooks his father would bring home. He had started reading Dragon Magazine, and friends, there's a throwback for you, right? Dragon Magazine at issue 19, and he was inspired to write his first article to them by an error in the rules for TSR's Divine Right board game. It was deferred to a later issue by the editor, but by then, our guest host had begun writing up monsters and submitting them to the magazine, earning him the nickname The Monster Man among the staff. Now, one of those monsters, The Cursed, appeared in issue 30 and became his first published article in The Dragon. 
Many more followed. So many, in fact, that he was named contributing editor, which, while being an unpaid position, meant he was writing not just his stuff, but assignments from editors of the magazine. Now, the first Forgotten Realms article appeared in 1979 and became a fixture of the magazine until 1986. Dragonlance had just been released a couple years earlier, and TSR was looking for a new campaign setting for D&D. Jeff Grubb, assigned the task of exploring our guest host's creation, asked him, Do you just make this stuff up as you go, or do you really have a huge campaign world? To which our guest host replied, Yes. The project was green-lighted, and our guest host agreed to help, shipping dozens of cardboard boxes to Lake Geneva. He was asked to write the Endless Stair D&D adventure to get a feel for how the process worked, and then a year later, The Forgotten Realms was released, and the soul of role-playing games changed forever. Our guest host went on to become a New York Times best-selling author with almost 200 books and thousands upon thousands of articles, short stories, game modules, campaign settings, and more. His novels alone have sold more than 20 million copies in over 30 languages, and there are an estimated 50 million-plus copies of his creations out there somewhere. He has swam naked in icy waters, explored caves, ridden horses, often wearing armor, hang-glided, fought with swords and spears, ballooned, hiked, paddled, dressed in drag, acted on stage, built rustic furniture, all in service to living life to the fullest, and ensuring that that joy and truth and love is vibrantly imbued in his stories. He has 16 computers in his house, so he can literally write anywhere. He has appeared as himself in comic books, published by DC Comics and by TSR. He has been continuously employed in public libraries since April of 1974, and in that time, he has had fans visit, ask for autographs, come to ask him to bless or officiate at their weddings, name their children, or give his blessing for the use of one of his character's names for a child, settle marital disputes, end countless game arguments, and even talked one of them out of suicide. He's had marriage proposals and been taken to dinner more times than he can count, and when asked, looking back, would you have done anything different? Our guest host responds, I would have been born as a fantastically rich, incredibly brilliant human female of breathtaking beauty, with the supernatural powers of flight, silence, and invisibility, all usable at will. And really, dear friends, who wouldn't want that? <laughs> dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the round table, Master Ed Greenwood. Ed, holy crap! Uh, I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna hold down my fanboy moment for just a moment. But seriously, thank you so much for making time to to talk with us for a while. We appreciate it, sir. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm just a normal guy who was in the wrong place at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> over and over again. <laughs> well, you know, <clears throat> after you've been knocked over by the car, you might as well just lie in the same spot. There'll be another one along. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Especially if you like getting hit by that car. That, yeah, that, yeah. You, you get to like it after a while. Absolutely. It's like playing any sports and getting hit over and over again by the ball. Don't do this in cricket. The ball can kill. Um, <laughs> but 
when it get you get hit over and over again, you get to like it. <laughs> okay, all right. This is good to know. I, actually, I think every writer out there can kind of appreciate that with the the bombardment of rejection letters we are all subjected to. Very good. Oh yes, I've had mine. Yeah, I've had my share. You get used to it. See, and that's encouraging right there, gang. Ed Greenwood gets rejection. Well, got. I don't know if you get any more. Oh yeah, I still get rejections. Seriously? Yes. Holy crap. All right. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, that just goes to prove that, that that's a part of the process. Mm-hmm. All right. Gentlemen, let's, 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 let's not bandy words here. I'm going to go ahead and set the clock for our 20 minutes with Ed Greenwood. And honestly, who am I kidding? There is no way we're going <laughs> to hold ourselves to 20 minutes, but we'll, we'll give it the old college try. Uh, Ed, my first question for you is... Um, in an interview with, with Jeremy Jones at the Kobold Press blog, you stated there is no higher calling than entertaining readers. And you invoked Terry Pratchett and Arthur Conan Doyle as examples. And honestly, your, your legacy of storytelling definitely affirms that resolve. So I was wondering, could you share some thoughts on what you consider the key qualities a writer can be mindful of when creating entertaining fiction? Sure. Okay. Um, This is going to sound pretty highfalutin. Um, I don't actually sit down when I'm writing and consciously think of all of this. (laughs) I just do it. But here we go. Everybody in the world wants to feel as if their life matters, as if they will make a difference in the world. They want to be loved or liked or at least accepted as a part of a community or a group and they want to feel that they achieved this either through hard work or hanging on or by making the right moral choices so satisfying fiction allows readers to identify with characters and then see those characters making the right moral choices Uh, let me just give you an example from a movie Excalibur, the movie Excalibur, the Arthurian movie, Patrick Stewart portrayed Leon de Grance. And right near the beginning of the movie, uh, spoiler here, folks, <laughs> he says, I saw what I saw. The boy drew the sword. And what you're seeing, because Leon de Grance, by standing up for this unknown boy, is going to be plunged into war. And the people he's going to be fighting are sitting on horses all around him. But he makes that moral choice right in front of us, and it affirms his worldview. It's his faith. You know, he's been told that whoever, you know, who shall ever draw the sword from the stone shall henceforth be rightful firstborn king of England. (laughs) And he said, right, I'm going, you know, so it was prophesied, so it will happen. You know, I saw what I saw. Therefore, this is the rightful king. And you get to see that choice right in front of your eyes. Now, the other thing about satisfying fiction is that it tells readers that people can make a difference in the world because it shows us characters who are actually making differences, affecting the world, leaving their mark. And that's something not most of us get to do uh, in real life. Or we don't feel that we get to do it. We may look back and say, oh, yeah, but, but at the time, it doesn't feel that way. The other thing is, satisfying fiction should address our need to have characters we want to hang out with. You are there albeit as an unseen spy, when, when cool people are bantering back and forth or <laughs> moments of self-sacrifice, doing things for friends, and you, you might be along for the ride when somebody is giving the secret handshakes and passwords and undergoing the rituals. 
that affirm that a character belongs. And another thing that satisfying fiction does, it lifts our hearts by giving us laughs. Now, these don't necessarily have to be, you know, light comedy, P.G. Woodhouse, okay? They can, and they can be vicious satire. Um, Terry Pratchett at times gets angry in his satire. Oh, my, no, yes. They're, they're satirizing deceit and corruption and folly. They speak truth to power on the page, and often the readers in the real world dare not speak truth to power, or they don't see any effective way of doing that. And yet the writer can voice rants, can show us poetic justice, the bad guys getting fitting comeuppances. There's an entire Terry Pratchett short story called The Sea and Little Fishes, and it's about Granny Weatherwax being told not to take part in an annual witches' competition by the sort of do-gooder, we'll, we'll tell everybody else how to behave, people. <laughs> and then it just shows you what happens. And it's an intensely satisfying story to read. That's the sort of thing that satisfying fiction does. It gives us friends that we want to hang out with. It shows us that our, the lives of individual people, characters, even if they're not human, can matter. And it... it tells us there's a sort of internal justice in the world. It doesn't have to be gods and predestination, but that somehow that what goes around comes around, that you'll, you'll get what you deserve. Now, that may not happen often in real life, but a writer can do it on the page and make people think, yeah, yeah, when a moment <laughs> happens. And that's, that's something that a book can give us, and it becomes a friend, a book itself that we can go back to again and again. And, you know, I can blather about this for you know, <laughs> a couple hours. So let's go on to the next thing. Absolutely. I, yeah. Absolutely. Well, and, and, you know, those, those points are all intriguing. I, I would, I would add a, a codicil perhaps to one of them that, you know, making the right choice, uh, especially when it's hard to do, you know, invoking Leon mm-hmm. de Grant's, uh situation. You're right. He was going to war. It was, the, everybody was against him. And yet he, as you say, he did the right thing when it would have been much easier not to. Yes, yeah, that's right. He stood there. Um, in Dragonlance, um, I don't want to ruin the, the spoil things for him, but there is a there is a heroic thing that Sturm Brightblade does. Mm, and yes, yes. you know when he's doing it, and he knows when he's doing it, the scale of sacrifice. Right. And when the reader comes to that point, they don't go um they might say, Oh, you idiot. <laughs> but but on the other hand, they don't say, Oh no, that's the Sturm Brightblade would never do that. They instead they go, yes, yes, this is Sturm Brightblade. Yes, or or they might say you're what you're such an idiot, but they know in their hearts it's the right thing to do, which is what yes. Sturm embodies. Yes, so. yeah. Um, and and uh, if if you talk to uh, Tracy Hickman, he will tell stories of um, vets who've done things that that ended up with them badly injured, and they will say because this. This book was my favorite book, and I asked myself, what would Sturm Brightblade do? Wow. Holy crap, could there be a greater tribute as an author than to, than to have your, your characters held up as a, as a, as a, a standard for, for moral choices? That's fabulous. Yeah, yeah. The, the, and, you know, it, it doesn't always have to be the testosterone he-man, you know. Hmm. Moral guides can be quiet, shy, wise old woman. The, you know, in, in a story. I mean, the character could be, um, uh, my, my father was an intense, uh, intensely strong, big man, broad shoulders, huge forearms like Bluto in, in you know, um, <laughs> the cartoons. Um, nobody was going to physically argue with him. But 
I can recall him on many occasions standing up to bullying and push, push, push type A uh, people trying to manipulate or just push people into do things. And he'd say, and how would you like to be treated? Isn't that the way you wouldn't want to be treated? So why don't you treat them like that? <laughs> you know, and when you're a big, strong guy and you can speak very quietly, you know, and the sort of teacher who instead of roaring and blustering says, oh, I expected a little better from you, <laughs> you know, and you can yes. pull that thing. So, yes. I mean, that, that's the other thing. Characters can be moral guides in all sorts of different ways. You can even show us a bad sniveling villain doing all the wrong things. And it's a moral guide. Just what not to do. Yeah. What not to do. I can. Yeah. It, it's a it's a rich field to play with. And I think that's that's one of the intimidating things that, that uh, young writers to the craft uh, are confronted with. It's like, holy crap, there's so much I can do. And we're just looking for looking for some walls and, and, and uh, an arena in which to play uh, with our stories. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's almost harder as a writer to have a complete tabula rasa. You know, it's like, oh, God, OK, yes. Yeah. You know, but if somebody says, okay, we play this game on this field, here are the goalposts, you can't go outside these boundaries, and you've got this much time, it's almost easier, more satisfying for the writer. Okay, I've got this much word count, and I can't use bad words, or I can't go over <laughs> this, or here's the cover art already given to me, I've got to match this. Okay, those are the goalposts, I can start writing now. It's almost easier. And creative. almost that's enough. Almost just even just a, 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 a cover art piece is enough to, to give you that anchor point from which to launch from. Yes. Yeah. Um, Ed, earlier you, you made reference to how, you know, when the car runs you over, you just kind of run with it. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, un, I'm unclear whether or not this is something I've ever told Dave, but my, my primary job at the moment is I'm an RPG writer, specifically modules, and most of the stuff I do is for the Doctor Who game. And my inner 10-year-old is still fist-bumping me every 30 seconds, like clockwork <laughs> as a result of getting that job. But I'm, I'm not sure whether I ever told Dave how I got that job. Um, it was because I had a video recorder. That is the only reason. A, f a few years ago, when the Sarah Jane Adventures, the, the Sarah Jane Smith spinoff mm -hmm. for uh, Doctor Who launched, um, the then head of Cubicle, the company who I now work for as a freelancer, popped up on LiveJournal. Yes, this is how long ago that was. I had a LiveJournal account. Um, <laughs> and he said, I I've got to go. And Sarah Jane Adventures starts tonight. D does anyone, anyone able to tape it for me? And I was freelancing for someone else at this point. So I was just, I basically stuck my hand up and went, yeah, I'll do it. And in one of the three instances throughout my professional career where I've actually been assertive and, and slightly bolshy, uh, I said, yeah, I'll do it. By the way, um, do you want any writing doing? And his, his response was, well, it's funny you should mention that. <laughs> uh, and off to the races we went. It, <laughs> RPG writing and design is a very, very, very strange field. And it, it's, it's a, I mean, I, I work in a lot of fields and it is far and away the, the oddest one. And I really, I just wanted to reassure Ed that, that the cars are still there and they're still <laughs> running us all over. Yes. Uh, except now they have Twitter accounts. <laughs> so they're <Yes>. faster. <laughs> the cars are moving faster. They hit you more often. <laughs> and, and they say things like, look, I'm about to hit you. Wee! <laughs> <laughs> We'll be back with more of our conversation with Ed Greenwood after this brief promotional break. 
Do you like listening to audio science fiction? Are you a fan of writers reading their work? My name is Mike Luoma. By day, I play tunes on the radio. The rest of the time, I'm creating science fiction and comic books. And I bring my two worlds together each week with my glow-in-the-dark radio podcast, where I read you my stuff. You hear free science fiction audio adaptations every week. And I give away the audio versions after I've podcast them, too. Free science fiction audiobooks on iTunes and at patiobooks.com. I hope you'll check out my Glow in the Dark Radio podcast or any of my free science fiction audiobooks at glowinthedarkradio.com. I'm Mike Luoma. Thanks for listening. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Ed Greenwood. Uh, I suppose, really, the, the other question which I had for Ed was... Um, and I mean, this this is one of those questions which I would imagine anyone who writes any form of fantasy ever absolutely dreads. Certainly with recurrent characters and recurrent locations. And I mean, you have created a fictional universe. You've created something which has evolved and grown over time. My my question is is really a logistical one, and it's one that's born equal parts from being a, a mostly former GM at this point and being an RPG writer, which is how in the blue hell you keep track of it? <laughs> well, it, 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 it helps to be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. It, it, it helps to make notes. Yes. It helps to have dedicated fans. And let me tell you a story. Um, not about me, and I'm not going to identify the famous writer with whom this is associated. Well, actually, there's two of them. They both, two of them that I know of that have done it. They create fictitious accounts or accounts that are not them on message boards and they go on and they say you remember this scene i'm sure this character had blue eyes and then they sit back and wait for all the corrections to pile in and then they go oh good i didn't have to look it up <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> because all the fans have answered it now i don't do this because i don't have to they have great fans who are interested in everything from the geology of the realms to um, herb lore. Uh, and I have three in particular, or there are many more, but there are three who have been my sort of faithful friends and go-to. Um, Eric Boyd, Eric Logan Boyd in Michigan, George Krashos in Australia, and Brian Cortio in New York. Um, Brian is our Cormure expert. And Eric and George have made a career for decades of explaining away inconsistencies in Realms products <laughs> by coming up with really cool new stuff. Rather is there, than just is there a, a title for that, Ed? Do they have a title for, for, for dancing around inconsistencies? Oh, yes. I, I call them my lore lords. Ah, very good. <laughs> and and the, the first lore, lore lord of the realms was Ian Hunter, one of my players, because um, he would always get all the little um, trivia things in the realms correct. He'd remember that the third guard's name was Elvar. And we only heard it for five seconds when one guard said to another, Elvar, get the door. He remembered it was Elvar. He didn't make notes. He just remembered, which scares the crap out of me. <laughs> what else does uh, he um, remember? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these were the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> Blackmail material on yeah, the hoof right there. Uh, yeah, but, but um, lore lords make my life a lot easier. The, the second thing is, I've been doing this for so long now, and it predates personal computers. So there is a lot of stuff that is not down electronically somewhere. 
But I have to admit, in my later years, and, and Alistair, um, you know, I'm being completely honest here, you reach a point in your life in which the brain, um, stuff stops sticking to it, and retrieval becomes a problem. I can remember everything I've done in the realms. I quite often, even if I've read it several times and I enjoyed it, cannot remember the details of what somebody else added to the realms. Because mm. I didn't do it. Right. If I played it, or role-played it around the gaming table, it tends to stick. But even if I've edited a novel, as in not done the um, official copy editing thing, but had novels run past me to check the realms lore and discussed things intensely. Some of the authors like to do their own thing. Like, they come up with their own plots, they do their own thing. It might get shown to me for lore, or I might read it when I buy it in the bookstore. And other authors, they want to make sure that everything is a-okay with me, so they'll ask me, how would you say this in this? If you were a Cormirian noble at about this time period, and you're trying politely say that you don't think that so-and-so had a child in wedlock. You want to make it perfectly clear around the feasting table, but you don't want to be rude, as in you don't want to be coarse, but you don't mind being snide. <laughs> so how would you say it? And, and we will go back and forth on how it would be said. Okay, um, if she has like just a friend's garden. It's a fully stocked herb garden, but it isn't hers. And she needs in a hurry to induce vomiting or to put somebody to sleep. What can she grab in five seconds and concoct something with boiling water in the kitchen or adding it to wine? What? And we will talk it through. <laughs> so that sort of stuff goes on all the time. Do I keep it all straight? No, I can't anymore because I've reached the cranial capacity. Besides, you know, people forget I've played in Middle Earth like, for real, in published stuff. I've worked on, on Doctor Who stuff. I've worked in lots of other universes and created many more worlds than just the realms. Hmm. I can't possibly keep it all straight. <laughs> I really can't. But the other thing is, and th th this is something that, that you can't create. This just happens. If people become intense fans of something, if they fall in love with it, they invest themselves in it. It becomes, to some extent, theirs. We all want to master something. And some people will master, for instance, Whovian tri trivia. And they will argue about this or that detail of the TARDIS or the Major or something. And you'll be going, who cares? Well, <laughs> they do. They care intensely. Passionately. Yeah. And yet, it's a, it's a challenge for... Uh, I, I bring up Doctor Who, A, because of your background, but B, because... It is a unique case in that Doctor Who, with different actors portraying him and lasting over that long period of time, so the society, the consumers of Doctor Who, if you will, are changing in their outlooks, mores, social fabric. Doctor Who keeps getting redefined. And if you're designing stuff for it, whether you're consciously aware of that or not, you are aware of it when you're working on it. You're aware of the fact that um, the early Doctor Who, although it was very progressive, it was still very, quote, white bread because of the society it was in. And it has changed. It become immeasurably wider. In the same way that, that um, early Star Trek 
It was amazing how many aliens just had funny ears and funny colored faces and were otherwise human. <laughs> Wearing uniforms and everything, you know. <laughs> I'm sure that was partially budgetary constraints. Yeah, but partially budgetary. But and and to some extent, you can say, well, that was Shakespearean, as in instead of us spending tons of money on a set, you walk on stage at the stage that doesn't change. You know, hold up a sign saying "A Street in London," and everybody goes, "Okay, it's a street in London." I will suspend my disbelief and let the you audience know. fill in the gaps. Yeah. But but I mean, and that you've just you've just said the key. The audience fills in the gaps. And that's also the big danger in a, in a shared setting that people love because we all share in, we fill in the gaps differently, which is why whenever there's a television or movie adaptation or a lot of artwork depicting a character, somebody will say, no, that's not right, because they've pictured that character as being thin and gorgeous and blonde, and the actor chosen is chunky and brunette. And, you know, <laughs> well, and that intimate collaboration between the reader and the writer is is probably the, the greatest power, I think, of written fiction and, and to some extent comic books as well. Uh, uh, Scott McCloud did a great uh, uh, book called Understanding Comics, and he had this great section on blood in the gutters, uh, where the first panel is this guy creeping up behind this girl with an axe. And then the next panel is a city skyline with the E over the top of it. <laughs> and, and Scott continues. That you, the reader, decided how long it took her to die, where the axe blows rained down. That gutter between those two panels was where the magic and the engagement and the investment on the part of the reader happens. Yes, yes. And, and I often use that excuse. My body is in the gutter. My mind might as well keep company. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Well, time is is ticking away, but screw it. I, I've got one more question for you, Ed. If 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 you would indulge sure. me, um, go for it. I, I the first module I ever DM'd was White Plume Mountain, which which sadly wasn't yours. It was written by by Lauren Schick, mm -hmm. uh, but it was cool. And 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 modules of that era was cool. And Greyhawk was so freaking cool. And then Forgotten Realms came out, and it was in my opinion, an evolutionary event. Uh, uh, it, it was, it was, it, it shifted. It was a paradigm shift from the way things were to this focus on story and continuity that I, I guess I felt hadn't been there before. I wasn't investing it in there. And fiction is, is kind of undergoing that same sort of gradual evolution. And I was wondering, given your position within the industry and your, your many uh, projects that you engage with, do you think there's another evolutionary event on the horizon for, for gaming or and or genre fiction? Uh, and and would you like there to be one? Uh, well, it doesn't. I, I think it doesn't matter whether I would like it or not. It's going to happen. Well, yeah, true. <laughs> yeah. But you, um, might, you might have an impulse of it would be cool if. Oh, sure. Okay, well, well let's go back to the, to the Forgotten Realms when it comes out. Sure. Um, if, we, if we look back to TSR at the time, the veteran DMs of the day who worked at the company, they ran their own campaigns. And I know this to be true because I spoke to them as an unpublished gamer, not as, you know, the guy from the Forgotten Realms at early Gen Cons. They never thought that so-called campaign material would sell. Okay? Wow. They thought what Dungeon Masters wanted, because increasingly as they had wives and families and so on and got, got out of being at college and having time to kill with their friends, okay, <laughs> that potted adventure, stuff that was ready 
even, you know, we know every Dungeon Master is going to tinker with an adventure. They're going to hopefully not wing it, you know, at the gaming table. Hopefully they're going to sit down and say, oh, I'm going to change this. I'll use this. I'll steal this trap from here. I'll change that. No, my characters won't like that. Da, 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 da. Um, they're going to change everything because that's what gamers do. But they were thinking that was the most useful thing. And in some ways it was. But the world guides back then meant Greyhawk. And Gary was too busy running the company to have time to do things like Castle Greyhawk. I mean, we all had to wait for the Dungeon Master's Guide, and he apologized all over the place for it. <laughs> we waited forever for Castle Greyhawk. We got to see a Castle Greyhawk joke product after he'd been forced into the company. Mm. You know, but, but such a thing as a kingdom guide, let alone a world guide, was a lot of work for something that, quote, wouldn't sell. Whereas everybody knew, if you put out another module, the Dungeon Master would tinker with it, but it would sell. Right. Adventure modules were the monthly bread and butter for the company. Now, they bought the realms to be, quote, a unified world for the second edition of the game. I had built the realms before D&D existed, not to be a game world, but to be the setting for my fiction. So it was the world for story. The, it was actually the land of thousands of stories. It caught fire because it was what role-playing gaming as a hobby needed at that time. Not a world of one big epic story. That was Dragonlance. You know, the one big epic story. But a world in which your player characters can be part of an ongoing flow of many interwoven stories, and they can leave their mark. Their story is neither greater nor smaller than all the other ones' stories going on. And the place feels alive because there is so much going on, you can't keep up with it all. It feels like real life. The news hits you every day. You know, in real life. Okay, so this place, you, you just are aided in pretending that it's real. Now... To some extent, another evolution has already happened in gaming, but it's happened more slowly because it's dependent on incrementally improving technology. Computer gaming, mm. with truly sophisticated graphics and a storyline so a lone gamer can play when they don't have access to a dungeon master and a regular gaming group, and online gaming, which lets isolated players game with others they'll never meet because they can't afford to travel the world, or perhaps they're disabled, perhaps they can't even leave their own house. Um, perhaps they don't have the social skills. They're too shy and embarrassed. They don't have the money to go to conventions. They don't happen to have a friendly local gaming store that they can show up with one night a week, or they don't have that time for that night a week. But they can still play. And it's human nature to be excited because you're in the know and you're part of cool new change. And it's also human nature to resist all other change, you know. Geez, when I was a kid, we walked uphill <laughs> both ways, you know. So I think it's inevitable. We all get that, there. We yeah, all get there. We all get there. And so there's some change we don't want, and there's other change we do want. Now, I'm, I'm looking at, say, virtual reality. It may prove, improve enough from what it, what it has been to be that event, or it may be something else. But it will happen, whether I want it to or not. Hmm. And I think, in, on balance, it's a good thing. What is tragic is when things get left behind. As in, I would hate to think that product after product will not be ever in print because the pressures of doing things and being the way the marketplace is moving means we go E only and we sell it on an online site. And then I think, yeah, there's a problem with that. What, what's the problem? In the old days, you could evangelize the industry get new people not just deliberately by saying here come and play with us here c come and join my gaming group we need a we need a wizard 
sit there and we'll tell you what to do. <laughs> not, ju- not, just, not just that thing, but you could go to the doctor's office or you could find it lying on the bus or the tube subway for us in North America. So, uh, something lying on the seat. You could say, what the heck is this? Ooh. And three stops later, as you flip through the pages, say, I don't know what this is, but I want it. <laughs> well, you can't do that if the physical product isn't out there. And what that means is over the longer time, you're losing what I call the, the natural, unforced, unhuckstered, unpushed by deliberate human hands way of getting new people in the industry. Almost a contagion, like, like a virus. Yeah, and we are losing people at the top end because we die of old age or because the car came along. <laughs> and we're not getting enough people coming in the bottom age. Now, of course, the, the flip side to that is uh, I go to Gen Con, for instance, and people who came up to me as bright young things and are now grandparents and they're bringing me their grandchildren in strollers. <laughs> you know, and so there's that way of getting new people into the industry. But I, you know, I would hate to think that people who um, either aren't electronically connected because of where they are in the world can't get to be part of this new thing and the people who want print products they can have in their hands and write all over the margins and keep get lost out the other end. That's always, you know, that, that's... It's something that's it's there in the back of my mind. Okay. Because I would hate to think that people who were there at the beginning and supported the industry by what they bought all the way through the years suddenly get told, yeah, you don't matter anymore. We have your money already. Mm. Goodbye. Or you don't matter. Yeah. We're chasing the young crowd. You know, we're chasing the young cool kids. And you think, hey, hey. When did I stop being a young cool kid? <laughs> there it is, slap in the face right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, crap, I'm old. Damn it. Yeah. That was never supposed and, to happen. And, uh, you know, there's, a, there's, a, um, there's an unofficial T-shirt. I, to go back to a Doctor Who thing, an unofficial T-shirt out there, not one of the officially sanctioned ones that I see quite often at conventions, and it says, you always remember your first Doctor. <laughs> and that, that plays... That, that is whole true for everybody. You know, w- that the tragedy is when we leave behind old things. And that's a tragedy that Hollywood unintentionally aids and abets by doing thousands of remakes. And the old folks say, you know, this new one is much better in terms of um, special effects or the color or the money they spend on it. But, but darn it, I preferred the old one when I was a kid. Because that was, and they're going, it's not really that the one that they saw as a kid was a better movie. It might be, it might not be. But for them, it's when they were alive and young and everything was new and what they did mattered. When when the canon of their youth was invested in those stories, uh, when they were making those changes and and exploring new things, uh, uh, the 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 music, the the books, the TV shows, all of those things imprint on you. And to have a movie come out and say, no, no, that canon is no longer valid. Here's the new canon. That's yeah. that's sacrilege. Sure, and and people who uh, write comic books had better be be very much aware of that. Because every time you change the origin of a character, now it doesn't, you see, I can see it happen in, in movies. Movies are a different medium. But if you're actually still talking about writing comic books, oh, I think I'll change the origin of this character. Yeah, it'll get us new, new readers. Yeah, but you also give all the old readers a jumping off point mm-hmm. to stop buying your book. Because, hey, 
what was wrong with the origin I believed and grew up with and that you wrote stories about for 40, 50, 60 years, and you just said, oh, that was all wrong. It was all a dream. Or it occurred in another earth. Okay, thanks. I'll stay with the one I got. Thank you. <laughs> I'll read my back it's, issues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, and that, that's, that's the, there's the old saying, be very careful where you tread because you're treading on my dreams. Mm, true. And I think that, that holds, yeah, that holds true for all of us. Um, when, when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, there were this, oh, thank goodness, they're finally making, oh, and they're doing it justice, oh, it's going to be gorgeous. And there are things about those movies that are great. And there were lots of fans who say, no, I hate it, it was terrible, they changed things. Or they got this wrong, or they left out Tom Bombadil, or they, they oh, geez, you know, that, that, you know, one does not simply rip off Mordor, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they can make it into a meme, but you don't rip yeah. it off. Yeah, and, and, and of course, that's natural. You could see that coming yeah. because fandom does that because, and why do we do it? Because we love the toys and wow. somebody has picked up the toy and we thought we knew what that toy looked like and felt like and they've shaken it and they've scuffed it and they've jumped up and down on it and they put it down in a different part of the sandbox and you go, hey, hey, that was my toy. <laughs> well, and, and that's the danger because it's not. Yeah, you know, it's it, not. It is and it isn't. That, it is that, and that, it isn't. And I've noticed that about the way you answer questions, Ed. Often it's absolutely and under no circumstances at the same time. <laughs> you, you Life live in, is a bowl of contradictions and so are all of us. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And, and the problem is when you get people who won't admit it. Ooh, yes. I, I did not inhale. <laughs> um, or, or whatever. Okay, I, I'm just pulling that one out. Of here. Um, I, I could quote many politicians on in many countries. No, no, please do not be didactic because whenever you are, it will come back to bite you. I, I stand for this principle. It is eternal, except for this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> because we have a vote and I have to change my stance. Yes, yeah. Yes. And, and, and if we all just admitted that, you, know, you could say, I am honest and I stand for this most of the time. <laughs> then you're being honest at least yeah this is this is important to me but i might compromise it under the right circumstances yeah yeah i mean the old joke about um so we know what you are we're just dickering over price oh guess yes. what oh guess guess what that applies to everybody because there's always a however or an exception that's human nature that's what it is to be human and on that note, gentlemen, I must put a pin in this. Holy crap. Ed, we could obviously go on for hours and hours. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah oh, talking is not a problem. <laughs> Shutting me up, that's a problem. Uh, and, and God knows I don't want to, but the, uh, the, 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 the clock has, has manifested uh, wizardling powers, and it looks like a red wizard of Thay, honestly, and it's coming at me uh, uh, with, with malice aforethought. I'm, I'm going to assume that it's really grumpy, and we kind of need to wrap this up okay. ed greenwood holy crap this has been a genuine delight thank you so much sir my pleasure it has been really fun let's do more of these oh. you ask good questions <laughs> dude we have you on tape saying that it's going to happen absolutely okay uh, <laughs> alistair there was a veritable treasure trove a cornucopia a buffet of writerly goodness uh, uh discoursed over that last i'm going to say half hour 45 minutes of fabulosity uh what what, what what's your takeaway from this one man honestly i think it's Ed's willingness to be, how can I put this, mutable. Um, as you pointed out, his, his 
habit of going absolutely this aside from in these circumstances and it's something which you find certainly from from a tradecraft point of view in every form of writing i've ever done there's there are very few rock solid lines there are very few universal truths and the problems you get and i'm sure all our listeners will be able to you know throw a rock at a search engine and find a couple of dozen of those problems <laughs> certainly at this time of year um those problems come when you pick a hill not so much to die on but to kill other people on mm-hmm. and the adaptability that ed's talking about the the willingness to work with what you have uh coupled with that very complex difficult almost constant rolling threat assessment which all writers have to do which is these are my influences what do i work with what do i throw aside um I, I think it's it's one of the more interesting and more eloquent descriptions of one of the, the largest problems and one of the problems that very few people pay any attention to in the job I've heard. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree more. There, there were life lessons in here. This wasn't just writerly goodness. There was lifely goodness to be had uh, uh, in these lines. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was, you know, I know I'm going to ask this question at the end of every 20 minutes with. So I'm always listening with one ear to what's the thing that's hooking in my heart that I'm going to take away with this. So so Ed answers his first question. Oh, it's that. And then he answers. the Oh, no, it's that. Oh, it's, so I'm going to go with the last hook because there are many hooks in my heart right now from this episode. But the the notion of the continuity of a long-standing story because every writer out there hopes that their work achieves accumulates that gravity that fan base that love that investment on the part of readers that they can continue in that well maybe not every writer some writers are content with the one-off books and that's fabulous but but for those of us that, are, that want to create worlds wherein stories are told that is the holy grail and the reminder the affirmation that as your property as your stories age your readers and the people that read them age with you and there is a covenant that is forged with every written word that you put out in the world that this is true and it's 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 written in stone for all intents and purposes and you chisel that stone at your peril uh, uh the the notion of of chasing the buck to get new readers uh, is is something that i've seen time and time again and and take issue with so for me it really was the affirmation that the first word you write that you put out in the world and establish as canon must have the same relevance, importance, and significance as the last word that you write, that you put out in the world. And and honoring and respecting those fans and readers that make your work fabulous, uh, that, that, that glom onto it and invest in it, you've, you, you've got to honor that. That's fabulous. Oh, my God. I, I feel like we just went through something that wasn't a 20 minutes with something much more arduous and delightful. Uh, but uh, but here's the thing, guys, you're, you're feeling it right. You're 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 feeling that. Wow, that was incredible. Brace yourselves, guys. In seven days, we're going to come back. We're going to bring Ed back. We're going to bring Alistair back. We're going to add into the equation a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer who is going to offer 
up a story for us to brainstorm. And oh, dear friends, you do not want to miss it. I'm putting on my prognosticator robes now and I'm looking to the future and all I see is light, bright, radiant light. You've got to tune in in seven days. And that is a long damn time to wait for this awesomeness. Al, what can our listeners do between now and holy crap, seven days from now before the next installment comes in to make that time just fly by? Oh, I have two homework assignments for them. Oh, good man. The first is really simple. Pick one of your touchstones, movie, comic, album, whatever. Listen to it, read it, watch it all over again. And if you are that way inclined, write two to 500 words about why you love it. And then blog those words or podcast them or put them up on Twitter or storify them and continue the heroic crusade to turn storify into something other than a last word generator. Then, at the end of that week, find something you have never gone anywhere near, something which is in the genre you would, or a medium you would normally run screaming from. And in fact, let's take that metaphor a little bit further. If, let's say you're a fan of The Flash in a particular time, the time period or era of The Flash, find something you've never touched before. If you've never seen the TV show, watch it. If you've never seen the completely lovely, utterly bonkers mid-90s TV show, find an episode of that. Mark <laughs> Hamill's a great one. Or a run that you've never encountered. Do something new. Find it and put your back against your north. And then find yourself. And write about that too. Wow. Friends, follow all of that and you will be a new individual. You're going to be a transformed writer, storyteller, person at the end of seven days. Oh, that's fabulous, man. I'm going to do that. I'm following. I'm going to, I, that, that's my homework assignment too. Yeah. And friends, I will tell you, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the, oh yeah, look for the, hell yes. Look for the fabulosity out in the world. And I promise you, if you look for it, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy and stay awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>